Well known for writing about books, bibliophiles, and various aspects of book culture, Nicholas Basbanes has worked as an award-winning investigative reporter, a literary editor, a lecturer, and a nationally syndicated columnist. David McCullough called him the leading authority on books about books. Nicholas Basbanes began his career as an investigative reporter for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. He was the paper's literary editor from 1978 to 1991. After that, he wrote a nationally syndicated column on books and authors. And today we talk about his book, A Gentle Madness, Bibliophiles, Bibliomanes, and the Eternal Passion for Books. Welcome back. Nice to see you. Thank you. Nice to be here again. All right, so the book begins... With thought, patience, and discrimination, book passion becomes the signature of a person's character. When out of control and (laughs) indulged to excess, it lets loose a fury of bizarre behavior. The bibliophile is the master of his books, the bibliomaniac their slave. Yes, and I think the next line says the line separating the two is fine, and we never really know when we cross. Uh, which which I guess was the premise and the springboard for that book. Yeah. Now, I guess uh, how we discern is determined on how we part with our beloved books. Do we exactly. let them go easily or not so easily? Well, then the, I started the book. I had three wonderful um, examples from the 19th century in France, and, and each one was compelling. One person said, oh, my darling books, what will happen to you when I'm gone? And so he basically died, and then the books were dispersed. Another one said, Edmund de Goncourt, he said he didn't want them to go into a museum. They must be sold at auction. That's fine. That was another uh, strategy. And then there was the third fellow who took care of everything in advance, mm-hmm. Xavier Marmier, who then uh, left some money in his will for a grand banquet, which I found out about the, the banquet of the booksellers. So I had those three different examples yeah. and then found uh, parallels right up to and including uh, our time now. So it was kind of fun. So the, really, this book is the stories behind some of the world's uh, most famous collections. And all I could think about, having read some of your other works, that you love research, don't you? I do. And that's it's. Uh, this book took seven years to write. this uh, Again, the, the edition we're talking about today is a new edition of the book. Uh, it was first published in 1995, and it seemed like an appropriate time to, to bring it up to date a little bit. Mm-hmm. But also, ironically, I think we were discussing before we went on the air here, uh, the future of the printed book as we know it. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, in an ironic way, one of the reasons for bringing out a new edition of this book is to make it available electronically yeah. because it is taught and read in so many colleges and universities and yet these and, and so many of these students really only are reading their books these days electronically. So that was really mm-hmm. one of the reasons to and do this. And you know, I, I I had to go back and, and look at the interview we did in, in 2010, August in 2010, and we had a conversation about the internet and where this was all headed. I know, I know. And you talked about uh, the internet having a negative impact. <laughs> and I'm uh, I'm writing in did general. I really? I'm sorry. Yeah. So now I want to, I was going to say, do you still feel that way? Have you changed well, your mind a little bit? Um, I have changed my mind. And uh, I guess I am fearful. I am fearful for the future of the book as we know it in many respects, certainly for newspapers, uh, as a person who's been a lifelong journalist. And and I see where the, the traditional newspaper is going and, and how so many of us get so much of what we know about what's going on in the world uh, mm-hmm. through the Internet. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's having a profound effect. On the printed book, I'm still hopeful. I still really believe that 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 the creative elements of writing, the novels, uh, poetry collections, really fine uh, 
types of uh, uh, fine press uh, creations really work best between hardcovers. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a tactility to it. There's a, an artifactual quality to it and that you just don't get through, a, through an electronic edition. Yeah. Uh, that's just my own feeling. I won't be around well, 50 or 100 years yeah. from now. To- well, I, you know, I, I, I kind of feel the same way. I like the book in my hand. I, I've uh, read a couple electronically. It's not the same experience to me. But and I, I haven't yeah, yet, yeah, by the yeah. way. And uh, it's not... I mean, yeah. I haven't. I don't have a Kindle or yeah. the other one, any of them, uh, and it's just not. A, it's not a statement of any sort. Yeah. I just prefer to read prefer, a, yeah. Yeah. A, a real book. Exactly. All right, so um, this book, uh, so Max Sander in 1943 uh, wrote an essay for professional criminologists, and he characterized uh, bibliomaniacs. As <laughs> I know people, you're going. I'm sorry yeah, to laugh yeah. in anticipation. He, he, he uh, characterized people who uh, uh, who are bibliomaniacs as people who suffer from a pathological, irresistible mental compulsion and an inexplicable Explicable urging, which has produced more than one crime interesting enough to be remembered. Do you and, want me to discuss that crime? Yes. Yeah, yes. well, that's the Don Vincenti crime. And Don Vincenti was a Spanish monk who uh, was obsessed with books, so the story goes, and uh, who was uh, uh, eager, anxious, uh, desperate to have what was believed to be the only known copy of a book printed in Spain, and he killed somebody to get a copy of it. And when it was discovered that he had uh, committed this crime, he went to trial, he was executed, and it became a cause celeb, to the point that uh, Flaubert, a very young Flaubert, used it as the premise for a a short story. And and I guess it's really one of the very few instances, it's maybe even be the only instance that I know of where someone has really killed Killed for a book. to, To acquire a book. Oh. But I also have instances in here where people have been killed physically by their books, you know, books <laughs> right. collapsing on top of them. Right. Well, and, and there, it's certainly there's uh, many crimes, which we'll get into, that are that, uh, have been, current. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Uh, so the first section of the book talks about the history of book collecting, uh, stretching back 2,500 years ago, uh, leading up to the 1940s. So we begin in Alexandria and the effort to uh, gather the world's knowledge under one roof. Really, and I carried that that whole thought forward into my next book after that, Patience and Fortitude, which I began again. I went to Alexandria uh, and talked about the great Greek uh, uh, librarians and uh, uh, scholars and intellectuals who had gathered in Alexandria, and, and the idea was to gather all of the world's knowledge under one roof. And, you know, surprisingly enough, they they may not have done it, but they certainly came close, and for many hundreds of years... Alexandria was the beacon, not just because of the great uh, lighthouse that was there, but for this extraordinary library. And so, and they were, they were as just as bibliomaniacal then as people of today. And so, and there were many, many, many accounts that I was able to find through very careful research and of uh, ancient sources. And, and so I started the book there and, uh, and then brought it forward. And, and actually, as proposed, if I may briefly just mm-hmm. digress, Absolutely. when I proposed doing this book uh, way back when, 1988, the idea was just to do a little discrete history of book collecting. And the idea was also to do it within 18 months and to turn in a manuscript of 90,000 words, seven years and 220,000 words, and a new publisher later, you know, <laughs> came a gentle madness. And what happened was being a journalist of many years standing, uh, uh, an interviewer, uh, uh, a, a, a person who really knows how, knows his way around a courthouse and mm-hmm. following paper trails, it seemed to me that what I could do that would really be new to the literature would be to produce a book that not only looked at the history but brought it up 
to the here and now. Yeah. Who are the great collectors of today? And and therein you know, mm-hmm. really begins the story of a gentle madness, which right. is part two, where I really went all over the United States to find the great great collectors of yeah. today. It, what's interesting is is the reasons people collect too. You know, there, there are for the knowledge, for the books, there's others, for the reputation. I mean, all of these collectors have sort of different reasons for why. They yeah, but I still essays. think it's it's uh, it's ineffable. You can't yeah. describe it. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. I mean, we were talking just a few minutes ago about the difference between a, uh, an artifact, a real mm-hmm. book, and an electronic book. I mean, I, I describe in here visiting with a man named William Scheide, who's still alive, by the way, in the preface mm-hmm. to this book. He's 98 or 98, mm-hmm. nine years old owner of what is arguably the finest private collection in the world by far. He, he has every known Gutenberg imprint. You know, mm. only King George III and the Earl of Spencer could make that statement through history. He owns all of them. I went to visit him. Uh, his library is in Princeton, New Jersey, on the campus of Princeton uh, at Firestone Library. And when I went to see him, he told me to sit at this reading table, and I did. And he went over to a stand-up uh, safe where he withdrew this clamshell box. I offered to help him. He said, you sit right there. Stay where you are. I'll be there with you in a second. I said, yes, sir. I always have my tape recorder running. So this is fairly accurate as to what happened. Uh, he came over, opened this clamshell box, and revealed to me the Old Testament copy of his Gutenberg Bible, wow. the only privately owned Gutenberg Bible. Maybe there's one other in the world. And if you listen to the tape, you all of a sudden hear this elderly gentleman say, are you okay? <laughs> and then you will hear me say, forgive me, sir, I'm a bit lightheaded. You know, it isn't often that I'm invited to touch where metal type bit into paper for the first oh, time. Wow. He liked that, and so we went on. But really, there is something that you can't describe when you yeah. pick up something as exquisite. As and if you look at those these early, early printed books, which are which are printed on beautiful 100% rag paper. There's no foxing. There's no acidic content. Mm. The paper after 500 years is still beautiful. That's one of the few That's examples amazing, yeah. I can think of where the, what we call the Gutenberg Bible, but the 42-line Bible, 42 mm. lines of type each page, uh, is probably still the outstanding exemplar of the of the form, where mm. the first, it can be argued where the first is really the best. I don't think that that that, that, that particular production has ever been surpassed. Yeah. You can't say that yeah. about many things. That's for sure. We're talking with Nicholas Basbanes. His book is A Gentle Madness, Bibliophiles, Bibliomanes, and the Eternal Passion for Books. Thomas Jefferson had a had a wonderful collection. You talk about, there, there's so many we couldn't. I, well, I he's couldn't, our bibliophile he, president. Yes, I think we absolutely, can say. yeah. Um, and you have you know highlight the the Folgers. The I mean, there's there's so many uh, collectors. It's, Henry Huntington, don't yes, you love him? Right. Henry right. Huntington said, "Men may come and men may go, but a great library go, lives, forever. lives forever. The <laughs> surest and swiftest way to immortality <laughs> right. is the creation of a great library." Well, there's That's motivation for you right there. Exactly. So you mentioned so the second section uh, focuses, as you said, the state of collecting in the 1980s. And this section includes the story of Aaron Lansky, and I'd love you to talk about that story. Well, Aaron, again, uh, part of the way I like to do my work is to is to go after subjects that aren't necessar- don't necessarily fit, fit the, the stereotype. What you expect, yeah. What you expect. And Aaron Lansky isn't what you would consider a book collector per se. He doesn't go out and collect one or two books or 10 or 20 books or 30 or 40 books. He, he wants to get a million books. And it wasn't really a million books for his own pleasure, but he wanted to preserve 
the Yiddish language. And he he was determined to do this. He started back in the 1970s, I believe it was. Young man, got a MacArthur Fellowship. And the result of that today is the National Yiddish Book Center out in Northampton, Massachusetts. And he is personally responsible for going out and, and gathering books which were literally on their way to the landfill, that people couldn't read them today uh, because of generational mm-hmm. things. And people can't read. People have not, had not been learning Yiddish. And uh, he felt that to preserve this language, it was necessary to preserve the books, to gather the books from generations that were passing. He had a bunch of volunteers who assisted him. And and, and in so doing, they actually were able to reseed library collections on all all mm. five continents, yeah. and, uh, Oxford University, Yale, Harvard, you name it. They were uh, receiving books from Lansky and were then able to to incorporate uh, Yiddish studies in, into their curricula. And so we, uh, we have these, as I mentioned, different reasons for collecting. So we have uh, Lansky, who has this noble cause, and then there are others who are a little more selfish, like Stephen Blumberg, uh, yes. who stole 23,600 rare books <laughs> from libraries across the country. Yeah, maybe more, but that yeah, was... That's uh, what we know that, about. That's what we know about. And, uh, and of course, that's the kicker to the story, as I say in the book, the, and I call that chapter the Blumberg Collection. Yes. He wouldn't have interested me at all if he were just a thief. He was a thief, but he wasn't just a thief. He didn't steal them for personal gain. Now, we've heard so many stories in recent years mm-hmm. about people savaging books, going into uh, libraries and removing the maps. Mm -hmm. Actually, not far from where we sit here, where this had happened recently. And these things are lost forever. No, no. Stephen Blumberg was really motivated to build a great collection of Americana, but the one issue was what we call provenance, Mm -hmm. where where they came from. And he, did we say how many libraries he went into? No, we didn't. But But I think it was, what, uh, 300, 200, whatever, close to 300 libraries in 45 states, two Canadian provinces, the District of Columbia, and fully 95% of the books that he stole were never known to be missing until the day he was arrested 20 years later. That was amazing. It was amazing. That was amazing. So I went to his trial. Yeah. I was going to you spent some time with him, and and he uh, pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you have a book called The Gentle Madness, and uh, and so there you have presented to you, and this happened. I mean, after I'd signed the contract to do the book, after I had the, the title for the book, I read in the newspaper about this guy who's arrested in Iowa, and his his defense at trial is going to be not guilty by reason of. I mean, it's, it's Leo, you had to go. Yeah, I had to go, and I did, and I got to know him, and he invited me to spend a day with him. Uh, he was out on bail. Uh, during the trial, uh, the only restriction is that he couldn't go within 100 yards of any library, museum, or bookstore. And so uh, that was fine. We drove down to Otumwa, where he had been arrested, where he had kept the books. And we went through the house. We went through a warehouse that he had there. And this is the only interview he's given. And, yeah. uh, and uh, that now, you was know, fabulous. That, it was, it's interesting because, yeah, here he's, you, you wouldn't think he'd say, you know, come on, Nicholas, let's let's tag along for a day. But it was your interest in books that oh, got oh, his attention. Oh, was it, it, was, yeah. it wasn't like, why did you? Know, the, the typical questions you ask, you'd, you said, tell me about the collection. And that was where the door opened. Yeah, really, uh, because everybody really wanted to know about Stephen Blumberg, the thief. I told him I was attending the trial during recess. He wanted to know who I was. We started to talk. And I said, uh, he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm, I'm writing a book. I'm putting you in a book with Henry Huntington and J.P. Morgan and the great collectors of all the great and notable 
collectors of all time. Well, he was really interested in that, and, and it was because of that mm-hmm. that that there was the promise of his being included in a book about uh, bibliophilia, mm-hmm. bibliomania, whatever. Right. That uh, that he invited me to spend some time with him. And he even asked you, "Do you think I'm crazy?" He did, and and I said, Stephen. That's a tough question for me to answer because during our drive down to Ottumwa, and it's a pretty good drive from Des Moines down to Ottumwa, he stopped every time there was a dumpster. I mean, he used to go dumpster diving. He would dive headfirst into these dumpsters. And in one instance, he came out with a book, and I'm ready with my Nikon camera. And there, <laughs> if you look in the in, in the General Mattis, there's a photograph yeah. of Stephen Blumberg coming out of the dumpster with a yeah. with a book. So. Tell, talk about some of the rarities that he had in his collection. Well, that's uh, another reason why I called that chapter the Blumberg Collection. It was not an accumulation by any means. It was very carefully chosen. Uh, he had the state of Connecticut's own copy of the first book p- printed in Connecticut. He had the Zamorano Club of California, the Zamorano Club's own collection of the Zamorano 80, the 80 mm-hmm. books central to the exploration and discovery and settlement of California. Uh, he had a beautiful Nuremberg Chronicle that uh, he he removed from Claremont College in California. At one point, by the way, one, the one thing he did do to the books, the only desecration mm-hmm. that he did was he removed all examples of, uh, of the identification. Case, yeah, yeah the, the book plates and whatever. And so he had been holding his knowledge of where all the books had come from out as what he called a bargaining chip. And at one point he said to me, Turn off your tape recorder, and I did. And he said, "He said, you know, the Uncle Tom's cabin. They think I got from Harvard." I, I said, "Yeah." He said, "No, USC, University of Southern California." But uh, you know, he, yeah. he he knew where all the books had come from. Twenty three thousand six hundred, and he knew where they all came from. That was the other amazing. I thing. I believe he did. Yeah. yeah. Well, because the FBI had them. You know, he had them categorized, and that was sort of sort of the horrific thing for him was that they put them in these piles. Yeah, they, they messed up his. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me laugh because I, I have a copy of uh, uh, the seizure list that the yeah. FBI put together. And, of course, they classified them by seizure location. Right. So it, if, 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 if it had been found in what he called the California room because he, he did most of his uh, significant collecting. I'm putting – your listeners should see me putting <laughs> yeah, like quotation marks around collecting here but uh, uh, in, in the state of California. So if a, he would have called it – he had his incunabula there. These are 500 year old books. He had a hundred incunables. Mm. That's a hundred books that were each, you know, published before the year fifteen oh one that that he had gathered. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and one of the things that that did come out of this uh, was that the reality of how vulnerable yes. these libraries were to thefts. And, and this, uh, he was very clever. I mean, he didn't just, you know, he walked. In, he got into rooms where there was no access. Yeah, he was a brilliant thief, and I had. Uh, did a number of interviews with the FBI people who had investigated the case, and they said, you know, these librarians really shouldn't uh, flagellate themselves over this, this because while their security certainly could be improved, he said he was determined to steal books, and he was such an accomplished thief. I mean, he was able to get around security systems, uh, entered into evidence at the trial were maybe 150 keys that he had actually been able to go, and he had been able to sneak into these libraries. He'd, he'd find his way to a, a desk of some librarian or curator. He would get a key, he'd make a copy of the key, he'd come back at night, he would be able to get around security systems, and he would go, and he'd, he would have previously identified the books that he wanted, and then he would remove them. Mm. And and uh, there's a funny story I tell in the book how, how when he was 
once he had declared, or once his defense team had decided that he would, insanity would be the defense, they sent him off to Springfield, Missouri, where he was to be evaluated. While he was there, a very prominent uh, mobster, whose name I know, I checked it out, by mm-hmm. the way, he didn't ever lie about anything, so far as I could see, had really wanted to meet with him and called him over. And he said, you know, one thing I don't understand is why why a person with all your skill would choose to steal books instead of something a bit more liquid, you know, like jewels or <laughs> gold or coins or whatever. And, and Stephen said, well, you don't understand. He said, I didn't steal them to sell them. I stole them to keep them, at which point the mobster said, purportedly said he yeah, really is crazy yeah. and left, <laughs> and left, and left yeah. him alone. But, his, you know, you could write a whole book just on, on him. And you, you do. You get into the trial and just his background, he, he had had, uh, you know, a, Strange upbringing. Very strange. And, and it, and I don't know if it's we have time to get, to get yeah. into it here, but I, I I attended the entire trial, and I certainly wouldn't want to put myself in the in the mm-hmm. uh, seat of the of the jurors. But I I was really uh, uh, I, I mean he had had a number of institutionalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he had spent some time in institutions for go- because he had gone into abandoned buildings yeah. and, and really cared about artifacts. And he, he really... Yeah. So the books, was, were, his artifacts were also like the books. He was stealing... Yeah, he, he actually he told me he started, it started really innocently enough as a research library mm-hmm. because he, his specialty was American architecture, stained glass windows, mm-hmm. uh, doorknobs. He had a collection of 50,000 doorknobs. He gave me one as a souvenir. I used to take it with me around the country uh, as a talking aid, you know, mm-hmm. and, but it's a brass doorknob and it's after post nine eleven. You don't want to have a brass right. doorknob, and, a, and you, <laughs> you inevitably yeah, you have yeah you have to take it out and show it to the uh, TSA agents. Yeah. But uh, uh, yes, it was a research collection. And I, this kind of gets back to that that the madness of the, of the book collecting uh, because he he did go to jail. He, oh, he spent he got, a lot of time. And he got released and got in trouble again. He got in trouble again. And they told him, don't go into any condemned houses. He used to go into the condemned houses, and he took out doorknobs. He took out stained glass windows. He took mm-hmm. out fixtures. The first thing he did when he got out of prison was go into a, uh, an abandoned house in Des Moines and got arrested re- removing doorknobs. And he went back, this time to state prison, and spent a considerable amount of time in addition to the first the first incarceration and as i understand i did <clears throat> pardon me i did a little bit of updating to see mm-hmm. where they are and what they're doing and as i understand it now he's living someplace shall we say in the midwest uh he's staying out of libraries and he's staying out of trouble and mm. i hope that's the case yeah. Continues to be the case, shall yeah, we say. Right. We're talking with Nicholas Basbanes. His book is A Gentle Madness, Bibliophiles, Bibliomanes, and the Eternal Passion for Books. Ruth Baldwin, collector of children's books. I could relate to this because those, some of those children's books, those older children's books, the illustrations yeah, are wonderful. absolutely amazing. So tell us a little bit about Ruth Baldwin. Well, Ruth Baldwin was um, the daughter of a very prominent Shakespearean scholar. Uh, who was a very authoritarian person, as we now know. He had three daughters, neither of whom ever uh, got married, and they were all involved in one way or another with children as a kindergarten teacher or a children's librarian. Uh, Ruth became a children's librarian, and once during a trip abroad, her father sent her a few chapbooks from England and said, perhaps this might be a nice little diversion for a girl. You know, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, I hate to bring yeah. in this, the gender politics, but it, it's applicable here, uh, that you might you might uh, like to do. He was a Shakespearean collector. His books are now at the University of Illinois, very respectable collection, a scholarly collection, mm-hmm. but it's in the general uh, the general holdings. 
Ruth's collection, by the way, grew to a number about 120,000 18th, 19th, and 20th century British and American children's books, which the day it went to the University of Florida, with Ruth along with it as curator, instantly made the University of Florida one of the outstanding repositories of these books. And she was she was something. You talk to people, she was like armed combat. <laughs> uh, and, and for all the years that she was at Florida, she died just shortly before I got there to do an interview with the staff there. That was back in the late 80s. Uh, she never allowed any students access to her books. I mean, the understanding was they they got the books, but they basically had to wait until until, yeah. until she was uh, no longer there. The voice of the passion for books, isn't it amazing? It, it is, and she. But her collection—that's a legacy. Yeah. We talk about legacy. What was her motivation? I guess she took the challenge from her father, right. and and and. and not only did it, but did it uh, with extraordinary uh, success. Right. Now, um, you stopped writing your literary features in 1999. A lot has changed in the publishing world oh, since big time. then. Yeah, what? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, it's. Uh, I mean, there are hardly any more newspapers that uh, have full-time book review editors. That's mm-hmm. the reason I left. Uh, I wasn't uh, let go, but mm-hmm. uh, my position was was uh, terminated, uh, and so I figured it's a good time. This is back in 1991, but I've been 13 years a full-time mm-hmm. book review editor. Uh, I don't know how many there are left in the United States. Yeah. I don't know how many newspapers today continue to, to, to review books. So that's changed. I, I think this the, the author tour is no longer... Not what it was. Not yeah. what it was. Uh, I know I certainly lived off the author tours when I was the book editor. I mean, I mm-hmm. 22 years, I never missed a, I never missed a week. Mm-hmm. I interviewed every major author that came through Boston, uh, or I went to New York, and yeah. you know, I did a little book called "About the Author," just a selection of some of the authors that I did. I mean, they were the great authors of the day. Are they going out on tour the way they used to? Not I don't the think way they so. used to. Yeah, and it's it's it, there's not a lot of outlets for them anymore. There isn't. Yeah. And that's I, I know. People ask me. I just finished a book for Knopf. It'll be published a year from now, if I may. Uh, no, called, absolutely. Called sure. on paper, yeah. it's a cultural history of paper and paper making. It emerges from my earlier books on books and book culture, and I figured it was time to really write about the the actual stuff of transmission, right. and that kind of got me uh, going on that. But they say, people ask me, well, will you go, be going on a book tour? And I, this is a very nice publishing house, Alfred mm-hmm. I, I really don't Doubt know. It, yeah. We'll, we'll yeah. have to see exactly. Yeah. You, you have to have something to do when you go to these cities. Are there yeah, newspapers exactly. to, to be inter- interviewed by or television stations? Yeah. We'll have to see. I, I honestly yeah. don't know. Yeah. But it's changed dramatically it and sure profoundly from, from what I knew it to be. Yeah, And, and back to your book. Uh, so when it comes to the book collecting, when is enough enough? Is enough ever enough? <laughs> there you know, is no way. There is a fellow, I, uh, one of the, th- one of the, something I really wanted to do with this edition of General Madness was to kind of bring it up to date. And in, and in compiling the new preface that I wrote, uh, I, I computed that 25 of the people I wrote about, and this book was first published in 1995, are no longer with us, right. are now among the departed. However, they remain, they remain uh, alive in these pages. One of them, who died just a couple of years ago, Toby Holtzman, he told me that you reach a certain age, and he picked 70, and he said, well, you begin to collect by subtraction and not mm-hmm. by addition, where you really, you really begin to think, what am I going to do with these books? Where am I going to place them? And how will they best serve uh, the next generation of bibliophiles? Nicholas Basbanes, his book is A Gentle Madness. Thanks so much. Always fun to visit with Thank you. Thank you so much. Great pleasure. I'm Mindy Todd. Thanks for listening. 
The Point airs weekdays at 9.30 a.m. and 7.30 p.m. We're also on Facebook at The Point, WCAI. The Point is produced by Amy Vince. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Steve Junker. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter. The Point is a production of the Cape and Islands NPR stations, a service of WGBH.